0: kinds of foods do you associate with grief? Is it food you enjoyed with the person you've recently lost? A reminder of the meals you shared together? Do you have a cultural food ritual surrounding grief? Or a ritual you and your family have created together? In the Texas Baptist churches of my childhood, grief tastes like fried chicken and potato casserole with cornflake topping. But when I cook for a friend going through a hard time, I make a pot of hearty soup and a fresh loaf of bread, meant to be eaten with a thick spread of cultured butter. Amanda Held Opelt writes that in times of grief, food reminds us that we are embodied creatures. Eating provides a tangible way to move forward. When we don't know what else to do, we must still nourish ourselves. This makes food a powerful way to work through times of deep grief. Today we're going to reflect on why food and rituals are so important, especially in the hardest moments of our lives. Welcome to Kitchen Meditations, a weekly podcast from Edible Theology where we examine the ways God meets us in the kitchen and at the table. I'm your host, Kendall Vanderslice. If you are hungry for a taste of God's hope and healing in the mundane tasks of your everyday life, then you have come to the right place. May these meditations bring you a bit of grounding as you prepare to eat today and every day. Kitchen Meditations is made possible by a generous community of donors. We here at the Edible Theology Project want to thank all of you for your support of our work. If you haven't given to our fundraiser yet, we would love you to consider joining us in bridging the communion table and the kitchen table with a one-time or monthly tax-deductible donation. To learn more, visit www.edibletheology.com fundraiser. Let's get started with a little spiritual mise en place, a prayer to orient ourselves before we begin. In the professional kitchen, mise en place is the process of preparing your workspace For the dishes you're about to make. It involves measuring your ingredients and reading your recipe all the way through so that you can let your mind wander to the ones you love without messing up your meal. I like to think of it as a time to prepare my own mind and body as well, asking God to be present with me as I cook or as I bake. Our spiritual mise en place today is drawn from the Liturgy for the Burial of the Dead in the Book of Common Prayer. Slow your breathing, And now as you breathe, repeat with me, inhale, after my awakening, he will raise me up, and as you exhale, and in my body, I shall see God. Today we have the joy of talking with Amanda Held Opelt. Amanda lives in the mountains of Boone, North Carolina, where she writes about grief, ritual, and the power of storytelling to heal our deepest wounds. Amanda knows the sting of loss. In a short span of time, she suffered three miscarriages, as well as the sudden death of her sister, the beloved author, Rachel Held Evans. Out of that season, Amanda found companionship and grieving practices of those who've gone before. She is the author of A Hole in the World, Finding Hope and Rituals of Grief Healing.
1: Welcome, Amanda, I'm thrilled to have you here. Kendall, thank you so much for having me. What does home taste like for you? Ah, that's such a good question. Well, like you said, I live in Boone, North Carolina. It's a small town in the mountains of Southern Appalachia. And so most people, it seems like here have a home garden where they grow a lot of their food. It's just like, you know, vegetable gardening is a whole culture here. And so when I think of home, I think of just fresh vegetables from the garden, kale, greens, tomatoes. We aren't the most successful gardeners. I feel like we have a lot of wildlife issues and and kind of rocky soil up where we live, but we try our hardest and we usually do pretty well with our greens. And we also have an apple tree and blackberry bushes and raspberry bushes. And so those are those are the things that taste like home to me. And also I have small kids. So like, Cheerios and goldfish. <laughs> yes, uh,
0: yes. Also tastes a little bit like home to me. <laughs> I love that. Both the things that actually grow in your home and the things that
1: <laughs> yeah, are consumed voraciously. Yes.
0: Yes. Can you share a little bit about the different places that you and your family have called home?
1: I was born in Birmingham, Alabama, but spent most of my growing up years in East Tennessee. So just across the border, my husband and I lived in Nashville for about five years before we moved to Boone. And that was 11 years ago, just this month. And so we've called this place home for quite a while. And there's something about living here that really, it just feels right. Like my bones feel at home here. I think I just, my mm-hmm. my mom's side of the family has lived in this area of western north carolina since the revolutionary war and and so i oh. think just something about kind of being in this place where so many of my ancestors is called home feels really healing and safe for me and it's kind of a long line of appalachian cooks in my family and and so just kind of learning the culture of the food here has been something i've really valued and and treasured
0: mm. are there any particular foods that connect you to your ancestors, the Appalachian cooks that come before you? Yeah.
1: You know, what's funny is that my, my great uncle, so my grandmother's brother was just like, you know, a little farm, poor farm boy from Appalachia. He joined the Navy and started peeling potatoes and just loved cooking. His mom, my great grandmother was a fantastic Appalachian cook, cooked on a wood stove till the day she died, you know, biscuits and gravy, pinto beans, cornbread. And so he, he loved cooking. And so he, Got through the navy, went to chef school, and he eventually went on to become the head chef of the Grand Hotel at Mackinac Island, which some of your listeners might know. And this is a really well-known, fancy hotel with you know fine cuisine. And he was the head chef, and so he would always bring uh, on on the holidays. He would bring home leftovers from the Grand Hotel of this like fancy food: lobster, caviar, frog legs. And he would he would bring them home to his little homestead in Appalachia and, and feed the whole family with this just like fine dining. And somehow all of the neighbors and extended family found a reason to just, you know, stop by during the holidays <laughs> so they could get a taste of it. But I think some of I think for me, just some of that that fusion of the old and the new of like, you know, really basic straight from the earth, simple foods matched with maybe things of a little little bit higher quality or finer taste, refined taste, like mixing those things and finding some creativity there is something that I'm trying to learn how to do, probably not as good as I'd like to be at it. But so much of what we're talking about
0: throughout this season is the stories that foods tell. Yeah. The ways that that merging of kind of foods across generations or foods across locations as people move and bring food with them and try to I- make home in a new place. Like all of those things, the foods tell stories, and so I love that even the lobster and caviar in you know Appalachia is a definitely tells a story of movement <laughs> yeah. and
1: yeah. yeah, like how'd that caviar get here, like <laughs> into the holler? You know what I mean? Like they live seem like a million miles from nowhere. And I guess the folks up on Mackinac Island wondered, you know, why is there suddenly biscuits and gravy and pinto beans on the on the menu? And my uncle Sam brought some of that stuff with him. I just love how. How home travels with you wherever you go, and and you're able to share share with people the foods that mean something to you and that you grew up eating, and and yeah. and that's how that's how we kind of share culture and share our lives and share relationship, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. So you write in your book that our physical bodies tell the story of what we have experienced emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. I think really in a similar way to how our food tells stories too. Can you share a little bit more about what you mean by that or how yeah. you've experienced that?
1: Yeah. You know, I think when we are grieving, when we lose someone we love, we, we think of grief as something that primarily is experienced by our hearts and our heads, like our feelings. And I was just reading James K.A. Smith's excellent book, You Are What You Love, and mm-hmm. he talks about how, you know, ever since, you know, Descartes said, I think therefore I am, you know, we, we, (laughs) we, in the West have kind of thought of ourselves primarily as thinking beings and that our bodies, you know, aren't, uh, they don't mean much. Our bodies are just kind of empty shells that kind of cart around our souls and our brain where the real stuff happens, you know? And so I think when, when I was grieving, I thought, okay, this, this is an experience that concerns my heart and my mind. Like I wasn't even thinking of my body i just kind of took my body for granted this is kind of again dualism this false dualism of body and, and heart or body and mind that we live with but what i learned in my experience of grief is that that our, our bodies and our minds and our hearts are are one they are one whole being they make us who we are and and so when when you grieve in your heart, and your mind, your body grieves as well. And there's there are real physiological responses to grief, you know, and it took me a while to figure this out. Like, why do I have a headache all the time? And why why am I just so exhausted? And why can't I remember anything? And why can't I sleep? And why is does it feel like I have kind of an aching in my bones? And I realized it's because I was having all these physiological responses to just the 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 trauma of the loss to be honest with you and that as much as I was trying to tend to and take care of my heart and my mind and my soul I really needed to take care of my body too like I needed to feed it I needed to rest it I needed to move it like move it gently but move it nonetheless Mm -hmm. and and just tend to it and and that's what actually kind of allowed me to then take care of my mind and take care of my heart once I actually prioritize my body a little bit you know i've
0: always been amazed at the ways that our bodies like remember that trauma over Mm -hmm. time too like the ways that they remember anniversaries yeah i remember the the first anniversary of a friend of mine's death i Mm -hmm. I didn't even have the date in mind i was driving home one day and was like why can't i control my emotions today why am i a mess today why do i feel sick and then looked at the calendar and realized oh this is my body has remembered this before even."
1: you know, my brain has remembered the day and it's really remarkable. It, it really is. I mean, you know, and, and all of us like to think we're kind of above that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, thank you very much, but my body does not keep the score. (laughs) And it's like, well, yes, it does. Like there's no uh, escaping that. And maybe that's why that book, it continues to be on the bestseller list, even though it's like 400 pages long and quite <laughs> dense. I'm always so surprised to see that it's still selling so many copies yeah. because it's such—it's kind of a slog to get through. But it's so yeah. true. Everything that I think we read in that book about how impacted our bodies are by our losses and traumas is so true and I think is really resonating. And it's something we haven't talked about for yeah. for years, if maybe not ever, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, in reading your your chapter on the body and on casseroles, I thought a lot about like every time that I've been in conversations around like funeral foods or foods mm-hmm. with grief, it's always said and sort of, it's almost treated as like a joke of like, these are the good foods that we only get to eat when we're grieving because we yeah. are finally forgotten about calories. But, right. but actually like there's more purpose to it that like we need kind of that comfort. We need that, like it serves an actual purpose of. Yeah. You know, being embedded in community and right. Um, can you share a bit of how food was restorative to you, um, mm-hmm. especially through community at, yeah. at various points yeah. in your experience of grief?
1: Yeah. I you know, as I was studying for my book, I noticed how many times in the Bible, if there was ever a death and resurrection, and there were just mm-hmm. a handful of them, but wherever there were there's always food involved in the story. I don't know if you if you notice, there's almost always food involved. So, you know, like Jesus is resurrected and it's not until he shares a meal with the disciples that it seems like they, they actually really recognize him. And, yeah. you know, poor Eutychus falls from the window during one of Paul's long-winded sermons and they immediately take him to go eat. And there's other, many other circumstances where someone dies and almost immediately a meal is served. And it's almost to me like food is like proof of life. It's like once you've decided, okay, I have survived this awful loss. I am a survivor. I'm going to be listed on the obituary as a survivor. What do I need to do to go on living? And the choice to eat is the choice to keep going and and the choice to not give up and say, I'm going to to keep my body anchored in this world. I am tethering myself to existence right now by eating and, and making the choice to nourish myself. And, and I think that that's really hard to do. I mean, a lot of grievers will, will tell you that they, you don't feel like eating in the immediate aftermath of a loss. Like you, 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 feel sick to your stomach. You, you just, you, you, it's hard to even remember maybe to eat, but, but sometimes in grief, when we don't know what to do, it's actually really helpful to have one right thing to do one next right step. And, and that's food so much of the time. And the beauty of that is that food often needs to be delivered by other people. It gives kind of people an, a, an excuse to come by, an excuse to come visit, a, a tangible offering that they can give you when you're, when you're grieving. And so that's what meant so much to me is that in the aftermath of my sister's death, neighbors, friends, former colleagues kept just stopping by my parents' house with food. And they, they didn't stay long and they didn't take up too much of our time, but they offered, you know, a word of support. They offered, you know, just this tangible thing that was going to help us get through that first week and two weeks. Um, and that's what I think is so special because it's, it's, it's so practical and it's so necessary, you know? Yeah.
0: I mean, it's this constant reminder that we don't exist independently. That that's right. We can't you know, maybe we can grow all of our own food and cook it ourselves. But even if other humans haven't been involved, there are still ants and bees and microbes yeah. and, you know, creatures that have been involved that remind uh, yes. us that our bodies don't exist independently.
1: That's absolutely right. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, what? what's great about funeral foods, too, is that oftentimes people offering condolence, so condolers, they don't know what to say and they don't know what yeah. to do either. Like grief kind of makes novices of all of us. Uh, and so that's what I love about a good funeral casserole or a casserole delivered to a grieving family is it actually gives somebody who wants to offer condolence but has no idea what to do. It gives them something really practical that they can do. So it aids not only the griever, but it it, it, it aids the condoler who may feel lost and unsure and, and unclear on what they're supposed to do. It's like this is the next right thing. Like we'll figure out week three, four and five, but week one and two Bring on the casseroles. That's yeah. what that's what we do, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I so my grandfather died earlier this year, and hmm. all of my extended family is from Texas. Um, a long line of Texas Baptists. So you <laughs> okay. know they really know their funeral casseroles. <laughs> oh, level. they got it down. <laughs> they have yeah. got it down. And so we were you know in the basement at First Baptist Miniola and the, had the full funeral spread. And one of my cousins who's also a Baptist minister, but at a you know a, a church in in Dallas, you know much mm-hmm. bigger and. Um, he was like, you know, I, I, I think this kind of tradition of of making casseroles is there are not a ton of churches that still do it in quite the same way, um, yeah. and it I think we all really felt the gift in that moment of a small community, small rural community that had the recipes, you know, yeah. ingrained in their bodies, and this is their response and
1: yeah. Well, and in that way, the church is such an important preserver of rituals. You know, I know that yes. like, the church is facing a lot of scrutiny right now, and people are leaving the church in unprecedented numbers and deinstitutionalizing and wondering like what the church is even for. Um, but for me, like the, it, I don't know. You can almost summarize it with the church cookbook. Like yeah. this is what the church is for. Like it's for these practical um, you know, presence in one another's lives, the shared memory, shared history. Um, you know, it, there are so many rituals that would be gone completely if it weren't for the church. And if it weren't for the way that we persist in community together in the local body of Christ. And, yeah. um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Cause I, it's just such a good reminder.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have, I, I, have dreams of one day doing a massive project on like church castor, or church cookbooks, <laughs> um, oh. and the stories that church cookbooks tell. Because yeah, you know, I don't know many churches that make them anymore,
1: but yeah, my grandmother has a huge collection of them from all of the different churches they were part oh, of. I love that. If you do that, come up to the Appalachian State <laughs> yes. Library. We have like a whole stack, like a whole line of bookshelves oh, cool. with just church recipe books. So <laughs>
0: amazing, amazing. Yeah. Well, you write about many different kinds of foods beyond just casseroles that have yeah. served as funeral foods. I guess most of my funeral experience has all been in the South at Southern churches. And so yeah. I forget that there are other funeral traditions, but there are some fascinating ones. So could you tell yeah. us a little bit about some of the different funeral and grieving food traditions that you've learned yeah. about?
1: Yeah, I love our good Southern, you know, funeral <laughs> casseroles. But, you know, my one kind of um, qualm with them, I guess, is that they are a bit devoid of meaning. There's not a lot of symbolism, nor is there nutritional consideration. <laughs> it's more <laughs> just like pour on the butter and bacon grease. You know what I mean? And that is how All we will... The cream of chicken soup. <laughs> yes. <give laughs>
0: Mix us... vegetables with cream of chicken soup until you yeah. forget there are vegetables
1: left. Yes. Give us the Condensed, congealed soups uh, in the casseroles. Um, mm-hmm. but, it, but what I love about... You know rituals from around the world and from you know across history is that there's all there's there's often been a lot of uh, kind of underlying meaning or symbolism in the foods that are served. Uh, so, like Belgium, for example, um, they they would only serve at dark colored foods because mm-hmm. they believe that in grief the world kind of goes colorless and and so it's um, you know they'll they'll serve uh, white wine. They won't serve red wine because white wine has no color and brown breads. Fortunately, you can still serve dark chocolate in Belgium at a funeral. Um, but just to kind of allow like what you're eating to, um, be visually, um, congruent with what you're feeling inside. Um, I I wrote about, um, corpse cakes in the book and I'm actually so excited to be on this podcast because every (laughs) podcast I've been in, I've tried to work corpse cakes into oh, the conversation and this no is one's place, interested. this is the place to talk about the corpse cakes. <laughs> I know. And no one else was interested. I was like, maybe today's the day. But oh, yes. it's this really strange ritual of in Germany where they would um, you know, clean the body and put a sheet over the body and then they would make dough for a bread and allow the dough to rise on the body. They would place the bread on the body to rise and then they would bake it and everyone at the funeral would eat the bread that had risen on the body and it was believed that the good qualities and characteristics of the deceased would then be infused into the bread and then we would ingest them and and go forward into the world carrying those qualities of the person yeah. that we loved and i just think that's so beautiful because th- that's true in real life like when when we lose someone we love all their good qualities and and virtues and and the things they poured into our lives, we get to carry those out into the world uh, as well. Um, Well, I love the,
0: um, you know, probably at first blush, the idea of the corpse cake maybe sounds a little unappetizing, (laughs) but but if you think of it also in relation to communion, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, I think the imagery is really beautiful that in, that in the Eucharist, Christ has given us bread as his body. And yes. you know, that that when we consume this bread, we are not just drawn into relationship to Christ, but made like Christ by yes. this bread. Like it's it's an even deeper sort of connection. Right. But right. one of the things that I've really loved in in my research on bread um is really thinking so a friend of mine amina alitas bradford is a theologian um, specifically looks at microbes and how like theology of microbes should impact our theological anthropology and she has written a lot about like when we don't when we pay attention to sort of microbial life and the the ways that microbes impact our in, our interactions with the world it should totally change the way we understand what it means to be human yeah. to have a body yeah. and to be connected and She works for a lab that has done a lot of research on sourdough and kind of the sourdough Mm -hmm. cultures and the microbial makeup of bakers and the bread that they bake. And there's a lot of interaction between the microbes that live in and on our bodies and then the microbes that are leavening our bread and are in our bread. And so I've always loved it thinking like historically in the parish context when everyone is you know, attending a church that's in their community and the baker's part of the community, yeah. Then you are literally made one in the the bread because you have this sort of microbial transfer. But thinking about the corpse cake, yeah. it's something similar. That like there are actually probably microbes living on this body and around yes. this body that are infusing in the bread.
1: And there is kind of this like at a material level, something yes. happening. Right. And, and that's what's so beautiful, right? Is that in grief, so much happens emotionally um mentally but there is material change that yes. happens and and the funeral food the tradition the ritual surrounding funeral foods I think names that embraces yeah. that and that's that's what I love about a ritual again here we are in the west kind of thinking of ourselves as thinking beings and it's like nope we're we're physical beings we need we need embodied rituals to to kind of act out and to process and live into this change that we are experiencing and I, yeah, that's what I love about a corpse cake. And you're absolutely right. Like, far be it from Christians to say ew about corpse cake, <laughs> right? Right. Because we literally eat the body of Christ and, <laughs> and drink the blood. You know, like that's that's our main ritual that we have embraced. That's right. for it's not years. just like, like the bread raised on the body; it's <laughs> literally the body. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That yeah, Christians have been saying that for a long time. So, um, <laughs> that's funny. You should mention
0: that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I I just find the corpse cake so fascinating. So fascinating. When I when I look at the role of food in the story of Genesis 1 through 3, um, and really kind of the role of food all throughout scripture, it is this ongoing reminder of both the goodness and the brokenness of creation. And I think you capture that tension so well in your writing. That these foods are a comfort to us in the face of grief, which is in a way a a reminder of the goodness of creation, but also that grief itself is a reminder of the brokenness of creation. And yeah, yeah, I'm curious how you have experienced that goodness and brokenness intertwined.
1: Yeah. And that's what I love too about the food aspect of ritual is that the choice to eat like food, eating food is necessary for our bodies to stay alive, but it's also pleasurable. Like God yeah. made food taste good. And so the choice to keep eating after a catastrophic loss is also the choice to say, I'm, I'm going to continue to enjoy life, to savor the good things that this broken world has to offer. I'm I'm going to savor this condensed chicken soup, saturated casserole. And, you know, this Belgian chocolate and, um, you know, the, 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 the foods that have been offered as as comfort to the grieving. To, to choose to partake is to choose to, to hope and to believe that the world still has something sweet to give us. And that's a hard reality. I think it's easier to categorize our lives as either good or bad, to categorize the world as either either good or bad, um, to gather, to categorize a person as either good or bad. We love to fit things neatly into a, a binary or one way or the yeah. other, and 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 that's just not how life in this world is. And and so, um, yeah, I think there's something about eating that's a little bit of an act of resistance that says like, this world is hard, and also it is good, and I'm going to lean into the good and choose to experience it fully and savor it. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm curious if you have any kitchen or hospitality tips that you feel
1: like everyone should know? Ooh, kitchen tips, kitchen tips. Uh, pesto covers a multitude of thins. <laughs> Of kitchen sins, I'm learning to like. If my recipe doesn't turn out lately, I'm just like I'm just throwing like throw a cloth <laughs> on it. Um, is one thing, but I I think probably my my biggest piece of advice is just and hopefully everyone's heard this before. You don't have to have a large home and a beautiful kitchen to be hospitable, and you don't even have to be a great cook to serve people dinner. People just want to be loved and to belong, and so you can you know serve them uncooked. Fully uncooked pasta and you know bland food, and just make your best effort, and your effort is enough, and and your effort will still make people feel loved. And so, you know, what is that presence over perfect? I think is kind of the kitchen rule that I'm trying to to lean into these days. I love it. Yes.
0: And where can people find you and your work?
1: Yeah. Um. Well, I hang out some on Instagram. uh, Amanda Held Opelt. And occasionally on Twitter, if I'm feeling like a fight, (laughs) Um, but both under Amanda Held Opelt. And you can go to my website, website to amandaheldopelt.com. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having me, Kendall. It's been fun. The choice to eat
0: is the choice to savor life. It's the choice to hope, to believe the world still has something sweet to give. Wow. Have you ever considered eating in this way before? There is so much depth and meaning behind the items that grow in our gardens, the meals we prepare and share with others, the dishes that we savor. I love Amanda's observation that in every story of death and resurrection in scripture, there is a meal. The food serves as proof of life and not just of life, but of the importance of life lived in community with others. Inhale. After my awakening, he will raise me up. Exhale. And in my body, I shall see God. And now to close, a prayer for our food in moments of grief. O God who wept at the death of your friend You know the ache of loss. O God, who shook the earth and split rocks when the sun gave up his spirit, you are not afraid of our expressions of grief. O God, who gave us your own body as bread that we might hold to the promise of your resurrection, you know that death is not the end. Bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. Bodies that cry and shake and stand frozen, unsure what next steps to take. Be with me in my eating, that I might know you are with me in everything else. Amen. Kitchen Meditations is brought to you by The Edible Theology Project, where the communion table meets the dinner table. We encourage you to discuss this episode around the table with your spouse, small group, or friends. Need some help getting to that rhythm? Sign up for our weekly newsletter at www.edibletheology.com, and you'll get discussion questions and a recipe delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our intro music is by Josh Gerls. A huge thank you to the Edible Theology team, especially our producer Jason Rugg, who made this podcast possible. We would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or Spotify, then share this episode with your friends. Your help ensures that others discover this podcast too.